I love my cat, Tiger. And as my best friend, we speak our own language. What's that? You love your litter. He does, because I use Fresh Step Outstretch Litter. It absorbs 50% more waste and odor and requires less changing compared to Fresh Step Multicat. Less changing means more time playing. <laughs> right, Tiger? That's a yes. Find Fresh Step Outstretch Cat Litter in the pet aisle. Fresh Step is a registered trademark of the Clorox Pet Products Company. Certain trademarks used under license from the Procter & Gamble Company or its affiliates. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Stop to me. Proceed. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Chief Justice, Associate Justice, may it please the court. We will divide the argument accordingly. I will handle the equal protection argument as we view it, and Mr. Cohn will argue the due process argument. Nick, do you have any idea what case this is from? Consider the most odious of the segregation laws and the slavery laws. And our view of this law slavery law clearly show is that this is the slavery law. Uh, 2058 is the evasion section under which this case particularly arose, which uh, makes it a criminal act for people to go outside the state to avoid the laws of Virginia to get married. Oh, okay. Uh, loving, loving v. Virginia. And the issue is, may a state proscribe a marriage between two adult consenting individuals because of their race? That's right. Super famous case. The Supreme Court finds that a Virginia law prohibiting interracial marriage is in violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. They themselves would lose their rights for insurance, Social Security, for numerous other things to which they're entitled. Right. We have done not one, but two episodes on this case. We have. But today I am having us consider it for a specific reason. In this case, the court says that this law, prohibiting interracial marriage, otherwise known as an anti-miscegenation law, is racist. The court says it is a violation of the 14th Amendment. The court says the 14th Amendment means a specific kind of protection. Kind of protection, as in a protection under the law extended to all people in the U.S. That is what the 14th Amendment did. Well, did it? What do you mean? All right, Nick, this is going to be an episode about context, about the ways in which politics and events hold sway over the interpretation of our amendments. The 14th Amendment comes up in discourse today in ways that have nothing at all to do with equal protection under the law. The most important pieces of any amendment and what that amendment actually means, that shifts, and it's based on what the Supreme Court says about it. I'm using Loving v. Virginia as an example because it was decided in 1967. The 14th Amendment was ratified 99 years earlier. And this form of Virginia's anti-miscegenation law had been on the books since the 1920s, though interracial marriage had been prohibited long before that. If the 14th Amendment is the Equal Protection Amendment, where in a century of this quote-unquote slavery law Was it? Yeah, I would take a step back and I would say that if you want to identify the most important parts of the 14th Amendment, 
The answer to that question will vary depending upon when you're asking it. So at the time that the amendment was drafted, people paid relatively little attention to Section 1, which contains a set of entitlements, and they paid a great deal of attention to Sections 2, 3, and 4, which concern representation in the new Congress, which concerned the exclusion of former Confederates from political life, and which concerned the war debts that the Union had accrued. This is Aziz Huck. I am a professor of law at the University of Chicago, where I teach, uh, among other things, a class on equality and due process. I'll confess, Nick, I went into this interview with Aziz having certain ideas about the 14th Amendment and what it meant. And those ideas included the 14th really meaning something for equality and due process. And it does. But that meaning wasn't really affirmed when it was established. The 14th Amendment was drafted and ratified after the Civil War and contains a series of measures that were intended to alter the uh, social and political situation in the South by vesting in particular former slaves with new kinds of rights and entitlements, and also to cement the new national status quo by creating conditions under which the uh, formerly Confederate states could rejoin the Union uh, without destabilizing the outcomes of the war. Huh. So Aziz said that just after it was ratified, people weren't paying much attention to the first very important section of the 14th Amendment, which, by the way, just for edification, says what exactly? The most important pieces of the 14th Amendment are contained in Section 1. Section 1 includes uh, four different textual elements, each of which specifies a different kind of right or entitlement. The first is an entitlement to birthright citizenship, with important exceptions. The second is a provision uh, concerning what's called privileges and immunities. And the third and the fourth, respectively, promise equal protection of laws and due process of law. But Aziz was saying in the 1860s, the focus was really on the other parts of the amendment? The stuff about representation in Congress and war debts. What was going on there? Was that just post-war anxiety? Like, what are we going to do now? And who cares about the rights and protections part of this? Absolutely not. The structural elements of the 14th Amendment were really pivotal to the way that Reconstruction could be implemented. Recall that the southern states that were formerly members of the Confederacy had implemented uh, rules called Black Codes in the wake of the war as uh, legal means of reinstalling the economic arrangements that characterized pre-war slavery. The 14th Amendment's rights provisions in Section 1 were meant to uh, repudiate the Black Codes, but nobody thought that those rights would be self-enforcing. Nobody thought that merely announcing a set of entitlements meant that the world on the ground would change. And everyone understood that for the world on the ground to change, political power and ultimately military power through the Reconstruction Acts 
would have to be exercise. And who was the key agent for the exercise of military and political power, and later judicial power, uh, with respect to the project of Reconstruction? It was Congress. And so the 14th Amendment's provisions on the terms of representation in Congress, on the exclusion of former Confederate officials, and on the validity of the public debt were, in fact, cornerstones of the new post-war political order, without which even the limited achievement of rights that we did in fact see would not have occurred. Basically, in order to actually make Section 1 of the amendment happen, you had to first make sure that the nation's politics would allow for it. And this amendment contains an enforcement clause, right? Congress has the power to enforce. So to undermine the Black Codes and to enforce the entitlements in Section 1, Congress has to be the one to step up and do it. One of the surprising reversals that occurs in the wake of the Civil War is that although Congress plays a a driving role enacting important legislation in the 1870s, even through to the beginning of the 1880s, quickly it becomes the court and not Congress that is taking the very general language of the 14th Amendment, and in particular, the privileges and immunities, equal protection and due process language, and transforming it into lived realities. And the court here is largely in the late 1800s performing the political agenda of the Republican Party, which is making most of its appointments, as the Republican Party drifts away from the project of racial reconstruction and turns toward the project of the creation of a national commercial economy. Hold on a minute, Hannah. I just want to pause on this notion for a moment that the court is performing the political agenda of the Republican Party. Because for a lot of American history, the court has been held up as this idealized, apolitical institution. The independent judiciary is ostensibly a court system that is not influenced by other branches of government. Regardless of that notion... I do think that many people out there would feel that the court is, in fact, partisan, even if the court itself would deny this. So can we address this? Yep. Let's get into it. If you look back to the design of the federal courts, the members of the Philadelphia Convention thought that they had guaranteed judicial independence by providing judges with after-the-fact protection from firing or salary reductions. They did not think, however, that routing judicial appointments through two elected entities, the White House and the Senate, presented any concern of politicization because they expected both the White House and the Senate to be apolitical bodies. The theory of national government that is articulated by James Madison and was broadly accepted at the time was that the national government would stand above what Madison called faction. And Hamilton 
Alexander Hamilton in the Federalist Papers is very clear that he anticipated that an apolitical Senate, drawing from what he described as the very limited pool of people who would be qualified to sit on the federal bench, would be in no position to engage in gamesmanship of a partisan kind with respect to appointments. I mean, I mean, I knew that Madison was wary of factions. Federalist 10 is like the most cited Federalist paper of all. But it's almost laughable to think of an apolitical Senate or of a very small pool of people considered qualified for the bench. Both of the assumptions upon which that design was based failed. And they failed because the Constitution was successful. They failed because, on the one hand, the Constitution generated a set of national politics. And national politics in the modern era means parties. We have national parties, contra Hamilton and Madison's expectation. Moreover, we have a national economy. There aren't just two law schools in, I think it's Lickfield and Cambridge that produce lawyers. So in a world in which there are ample qualified applicants for federal judgeships, and there are very powerful partisan dynamics that push both Democrats and Republicans to make selections based upon partisanship, and where both Democrats and Republicans know that the design of Congress and the presidency is such that gridlock will often dominate so that the courts are the only available pathway for different kinds of national policymaking, there is both motive and opportunity to deploy the courts as instruments of national policymaking. Under those conditions, for people to say that courts stand outside politics is, I think, a form of professional malpractice when the claim is made by a legal academic. So to Aziz's point, we can reasonably say that the Supreme Court is influenced by politics. I think, Nick, perhaps we should say that if we want to be reasonable, even if, you know, that means shattering a beloved American myth. But that is sometimes what we do here at Civics 101. So how was the court enacting the political agenda of the Republican Party? We talked a bit about the slaughterhouse cases in our Reconstruction series. Butchers who appealed a case in the Supreme Court with 14th Amendment equal protection claims. This is 1873. And here's how the court decided. The court narrowly interprets the protections of the 14th Amendment as they apply to formerly enslaved people in the South and their descendants. So the court narrows the scope of the uh, 14th Amendment insofar as it is a shield against racial violence and exclusion. This culminates in a case called the Civil Rights Cases, where the court declares that Congress has no authority under the 14th Amendment to regulate private action. 
and in so doing announces that it is time for the formerly enslaved to cease to be the special wards of the law. So this is a, a point in time at which not just the court is ruling in ways that are disfavorable to former slaves. It is articulating clearly its repudiation of the project of racial reconstruction. Starting in the decade that follows that, the court finds in the 14th Amendment another political project. And, and it's important to note that that's happening at the same time, that the National Republican Party is turning toward uh, a much more free market vision of the United States. It's aggressively appointing judges to the lower courts and to the Supreme Court. And it's those judges that are finding, in particular, in the due process clause to the 14th Amendment, an idea of what has come to be called economic liberty. Wait, what does that mean? It's mostly about what employers and investors are owed in business deals. The court decides that regulated entities, like railroads, are entitled to fair returns on their investments. It also says that employers are entitled to whatever contract they want to make with their employees, regardless of minimum wage or maximum hour laws that states might have. As in, even if your state says that you have to pay fair wages and you can't make your employee work more than 40 hours a week, the court says, actually, you can pay them whatever you want. You can make them work as long as you want, and they can just quit if they don't like it. Yep. So the court, by the early 20th century, has turned the 14th Amendment from a charter for racial reconstruction into a shield for, broadly speaking, corporate activity or capital against, in particular, state, but later national efforts to regulate, particularly in the name of redistribution. So if we want to answer your question from the beginning of the episode, Hannah, where was the 14th Amendment in the century before the Loving v. Virginia case? The answer is, in large part, the 14th Amendment was busy protecting business. The court was moving in rough lockstep with the elected branches and in particular with the Republican coalition with which it was more closely aligned at that point in time. Uh, and remember that by the election of 1876, the project of racial reconstruction had largely been put aside by the national government in more or less explicit terms. Um, there are decisions after that election from the Supreme Court that are actually more favorable than one would imagine to racial reconstruction. Uh, but at that point, the political will is flagging. The appointments to the lower courts are increasingly characterized by uh, people who have an interest and a, a history of working in one kind of business or another. And we're starting to see the courts shift accordingly. So when did the Supreme Court start to look at the 14th Amendment differently? If we think of it as an amendment about due process and equal protection, specifically when it comes to race, was there a point at which it did mean that? There was. And in fact, it certainly meant that to a huge portion of the population before the court affirmed it. And we'll get to that after the break. But first, just a reminder, you don't have to miss a single episode of Civics 101 
ever. You can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know the drill. And while you're there, consider leaving us a review just to let us know what you think. Your feedback means a lot to us, and it helps our show get better. See, both Hannah and I used to be actors, so feedback is like oxygen. Sometimes very painful, sometimes very cruel, but always helpful. Oxygen. We'll also just accept you telling us you like us, because again, actors. Is that a little too thirsty, Hannah? A little. My cat Rachel is the silliest cat I know. One time, she played inside a paper bag for three hours. What a mystery. But I'm glad her health isn't. Thanks to the color-changing litter from Fresh Step Crystal's health monitoring litter. This premium color-changing litter has pH-activated crystals that can help me detect potential illness early. That makes it easy for me to stay on top of her health and well-being. I may not understand all of Rachel's silly quirks, but I can keep up with the important things. Find Fresh Step Crystal's health monitoring litter at a store near you. Fresh Step is a registered trademark of the Clorox Pet Products Company. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. We're back. You're listening to Civics 101. And before the break, Nick, you asked when the 14th Amendment started to really mean what we tend to think of it to mean today an amendment that enshrines due process and equal protection under the law. It's important to note that while the judiciary certainly did not uphold the racial equality and due process aspects of the 14th Amendment initially, that doesn't mean that citizens forgot about it. It just means that when the rubber meets the road, it didn't really matter. So until the 1930s, It was very rare for a member of a racial minority to win a case under the Equal Protection Clause. Uh, Indeed, there's a a famous decision not involving race called Buck v. Bell, in which Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes calls the Equal Protection Clause the lawyer's last refuge. It's the very last place that you uh, look as a lawyer if you're desperate for argument. Equal protection was a last-ditch effort argument? It's just hard for me to imagine equal protection as not being a really important claim, especially when it comes to a case about race. So at some point, Section 1 of the 14th Amendment really did start to matter, though, right? Equal protection, due process. Those are big. So when did things change? The NAACP at the beginning of the 1950s, now this is a period in which you have two kinds of pressure on the federal government. First, there's pressure from black soldiers who fought in World War II in the Pacific and the European theaters, who are coming back and who are not content to literally sit at the back of the bus. And second, you have uh, the Soviet Union trying to win proxy wars, particularly in Africa, by centering its propaganda on the fact of Jim Crow. So basically, politics changed. So there's two pressures on the federal government at this point in time. And since the FDR administration, uh, an administration in which Eleanor Roosevelt played a particularly important role in picking out judges, uh, you've had more and more judges being appointed to the lower federal courts who are sympathetic to questions of racial equity raised by African-Americans against Jim Crow. And you have an interest 
on the part of the Democratic Party, notice again the importance of partisan politics, you have an interest on the part of the leaders of the Democratic Party in breaking the hold of Dixiecrats on the party. Quickly here, the Dixiecrats, they were a segregationist party primarily in the southern U.S., what you would call a splinter group from the Democratic Party itself. They objected to the Democrats' civil rights plan that was popular mostly in the North. Dixiecrats have stood in the way of major parts of the New Deal. Uh, this is an enormous thought on the side of the FDR administration uh, and the Truman administration. All right. So you have geopolitical, social and partisan political pressures on the federal government. In that context, the NAACP gambles on advancing the gains they'd made in the university education context by trying to extend the principle of separate but equal into, or trying to extend not just the challenge to equality, the challenge for equality, but the challenge to separation as such from the university context into the, the primary and secondary school context. Okay, like in Brown v. Board of Education, right? Exactly that. Decided in 1954. The case in which the court ruled that separate but equal is inherently unequal. And mind you, even though this case has come to stand for a great moral victory in the United States, it was by no means a guarantee that the court would allow the 14th Amendment to win out here. Actually, just the opposite. It's really important to say that this is an enormous gamble. It's an enormous gamble because the emotional stakes for white Americans at this time, for primary and secondary education, are extraordinarily different from the emotional stakes of tertiary education. The principal talking point, if you go back and look at arguments about Brown, one of the principal talking points is the threat that black male students will pose to white female students in primary and secondary school. The sexual threat, it is explicitly understood. There is an explicit appeal to a, a racist understanding of black male sexuality as a justification for maintaining separation in schools. And the NAACP are really gambling in pushing back at this because this is a very, very powerful force that cuts across partisan lines. So they bring a series of cases across five or six uh, American cities, uh, largely in places where the, where the separate black schools are pretty good. What does he mean when he says the schools are pretty good? As in, not schools that are obviously substandard. Not schools that you would point to and say, you see, here are black children who are in a lesser environment receiving poor education compared to white kids. And the NAACP brought the cases in places like Kansas City precisely because they didn't want equality. They wanted to get rid of separation because they thought that nationally, yeah, you might have these pockets of good black schools, but nationally, green will follow white. The money will follow the white students. And if you desegregate the schools, the money will go to mixed schools and as a whole, black kids will benefit. So they bring these cases. They win, in a, in a way, in Brown v. Board of Education. Win, in a way? Famously, or maybe infamously, the court ordered that desegregation occur, quote, with all deliberate speed. 
Well, who's to say what that actually means? And school districts, particularly in the South, dragged their feet for a long time. The real change is federal legislation in the beginning of the 1960s. There's a federal statute that involves secondary education funding that made uh, federal funding conditional on uh, having a desegregated school. And there is a provision in the 1964 Civil Rights Act that allows the Department of Justice to file suit. Those two things are game changers. So remember earlier on, we talked about whether it's the court or the Congress that is in the driver's seat. The court is in the driver's seat around desegregation and it, it couldn't get the, get the vehicle into anything beyond first gear, right? The car kind of sputters forward uh, with a lot of friction and a lot of smoke coming out of the hood. And it's really only when Congress steps in that you have a shift, an upgearing toward a noticeable shift in the allocation of children between different schools. All right. Well, this reminds me of what Aziz was talking about when it came to the 14th Amendment in the 19th century, but it's the opposite, right? When the amendment was ratified, it was supposed to be Congress who enforced it, but the Supreme Court weakened the Privileges and Immunities Clause and the Equal Protection and Due Process Clauses. So now it's the 1960s and the court's saying, here's what the 14th Amendment means, but they need Congress to make it happen. Yes, but just as importantly, the court continued to say, here is what the 14th Amendment means, specifically with respect to rights, protections, and privileges. Map v. Ohio, Griswold v. Connecticut, Loving v. Virginia, Roe v. Wade, Obergefell v. Hodges. All of these cases, by the way, we have done episodes on. So to that end, I asked Aziz, is the Supreme Court in the driver's seat when it comes to the 14th Amendment, or is it Congress? The court is still in the driving seat, in part because we have an increasingly deadlocked Congress, thanks to polarization. Um, the court is in the driving seat both in respect to equal protection and in respect to due process. On equal protection, the court has increasingly emphasized what it calls a colorblind view of the equality promise. One result of the, of the colorblind accent of its case law is that it is almost impossible for a minority plaintiff to win an equal protection case. And going back to the late 70s and early 80s, almost all of the, the individuals who win equality arguments are white plaintiffs. So the uh, Equal Protection Clause has become an instrument for eliminating means of redistribution that largely benefit racial minorities. That is what the Equal Protection Clause does these days. Uh, that effect is amplified because when minority plaintiffs bring equal protection claims, generally their argument is that they have been intentionally discriminated against. Often this is an argument that's made in the context of coercive state action like policing or border control. And in those contexts, the court has erected almost insurmountable barriers to proving intent. So where uh, a white plaintiff is likely to bring a case, the court has lowered the barriers to success. Where a minority plaintiff, either a black plaintiff in the context of policing, or let's say Hispanic or uh, uh, other 
ethnicity, national origin plaintiff brings a claim in the context of, say, immigration enforcement, it is almost impossible to win an equal protection claim. We've already just touched on what the court is doing with respect to due process. It's doing, it's getting rid of rights to sexual autonomy, notwithstanding that that right being on the books for 50 years and being something that uh, largely women have uh, come to depend upon. One last point Aziz made, and by the way, he has written a book about exactly this, brings us back to the enforcement question, be that enforcement by the federal Congress or by the states. Except Aziz calls it remedies. Not so much the idea of what rights are available under the 14th Amendment, but what remedies are available. The last book that I wrote was about how remedies emerged under the under the 14th Amendment and then effectively collapsed. And so, for example, with respect to police violence, you know, you or I have a right to protection against both racist and unlawful violence by the police in theory, but we don't have one in practice. And that gap between the rights that we have and the way that, the, that they can be enforced through remedies, I think is really important and I think is very underappreciated. So it's all well and good to say the 14th Amendment means these rights and these protections, but if the rubber doesn't meet the road, it doesn't really matter. All right, Hannah, I do have to ask one last question. The 14th Amendment has come up quite a few times in the last couple of years. There's also a tension, though, on members of Congress who some believe were also responsible for promoting that riot at the Capitol. Calls for accountability there have been extended to those lawmakers that are accused of throwing gasoline on the fire by pushing theories of a stolen election. The 14th Amendment has been brought up as the mechanism for that. Among the progressive Democrats in the Senate urging the president to consider using the 14th Amendment to avoid default. Uh, Senator, thanks for being on. Uh, Has this ever been done before? I'm looking back. How on earth do debt ceiling negotiations or the question of who can sit in office have anything to do with the 14th Amendment? The third section of the 14th Amendment says that if you have uh, engaged in rebellion or insurrection or given aid and comfort uh, to a rebellion or insurrection, you can't run for public office in the United States, whether it's at the state or the federal level. We have had a rebellion or insurrection on January the 6th, 2021, uh, and that this provision has been used uh, in one case successfully to bar people from public office. Uh, The second element of the 14th Amendment that is suddenly uh, nearly relevant is uh, there is a provision in the 14th Amendment that prohibits anyone from questioning the debt of the United States. Now, this was a measure that was intended to ensure that the newly readmitted southern states could not capsize the federal government by repudiating the very large union war debt. So back to your question, Nick. In early 2023, Congress authorized spending through legislation. Now it is responsible for paying the money. And there's a law from 1917 called the Second Liberty Bond Act, which created what we now call the debt ceiling, where Congress has to vote if they're going to spend money that goes over that ceiling. And by the way, we recently made an episode about the debt ceiling, and I warmly recommend you give it a listen. What's happening today is that Congress, having decided to spend money, is refusing to fund that spending in such a way as to make it uh, fiscally impossible for the United States to pay interest on its debts. Treasuries. Can't pay interest on treasuries. The argument from the 14th Amendment is 
Congress effectively here is questioning the validity of the debt. It is preventing the executive branch from paying the interest on treasuries. Uh, since treasuries are the most important element of most money market funds, failing to pay interest on treasuries will have the effect of dramatically destabilizing suddenly and maybe comprehensively the US economy. This is exactly the kind of problem that Section 4 of the 14th Amendment was meant to prevent. And the argument is, is that where Congress does something unconstitutional, the president doesn't have to execute that unconstitutional order. So, for example, if Congress passed a statute saying anyone who tweets in favor of X political candidate will be summarily locked up, no one thinks that the president is under a constitutional obligation to enforce that law. Why? Because the law is plainly unconstitutional. Here, the law is again, I, I don't think it's plainly unconstitutional, but I, it's argu at least arguably unconstitutional. And therefore, Biden has authority to, there's a number of things that he could do. There's the famous trillion dollar coin, which I'm not, I'm not enamored by, but there are other less wacky things that he can do that mitigate the problem caused by Congress calling in to doubt the debt. So after all this time, the 14th Amendment, the one that we associate with equal protection, with due process, is back to the debt question. We do love to repeat history around here. This episode was produced by me, Hannah McCarthy, with Nick Capodice. Christina Phillips is our senior producer, Jackie Fulton is our producer, and Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. Music in this episode by Zylo Zyko, Viskid, 91 Nova, Hatami Tsunami, Spring Gang, John Runefelt, Fruk, Sarah the Instrumentalist, and XIVI. And just a little reminder that we are public radio. What does that mean? It means that we're free for you, we tell the truth, and we are beholden only to you, the public. We also rely on the public to keep us going. You will hear ads on this show from time to time, but our primary source of support is you. So if you're in the position to make a contribution to this show, I kindly ask that you consider doing so. I myself have been contributing to public radio since I was a teenager. That is how much it means to me. It feels good even if it's just a dollar a month, which is, by the way, how I started. You can click the donate button at civics101podcast.org to voice your support for this show and for the project of public media. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio. My cat Rachel is the silliest cat I know. One time, she played inside a paper bag for three hours. What a mystery. But I'm glad her health isn't. Thanks to the color-changing litter from Fresh Step Crystals Health Monitoring Litter. This premium color-changing litter has pH-activated crystals that can help me detect potential illness early. That makes it easy for me to stay on top of her health and well-being. 
I may not understand all of Rachel's silly quirks, but I can keep up with the important things. Find Fresh Step Crystals Health Monitoring Litter at a store near you. Fresh Step is a registered trademark of the Clorox Pet Products Company. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.